0: Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Stay tuned to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary as we sit down with Pastor Andy Webb to discuss Samuel Miller and other matters related to Princeton Seminary. and Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is a weekly podcast of the seminary, and lately we've been able to actually keep it as a weekly podcast. Um, the nice thing about this podcast, this one particularly today, is that I am no longer having to worry about the stress and strain of the seminary semester. I have finished my last final and I am able to now look forward to a summer of preparation, as it were, for the fall semester. But anyway, be that as it may, um, this podcast is a little more relaxing for me, um, particularly this broadcast, because I don't have that proverbial brick swinging over my head any longer. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and as I indicated, this is a weekly podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. If you are interested in more information about the seminary, you can visit us at our website, Gpts.edu. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast in particular, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu, and I do the best I can to answer every email I receive. And so feel free to write comments, questions, criticisms, or inquiries, and I will get back to you just as soon as I am able Today we had the pleasure of speaking with a pastor, a man who was at our theology conference that is held typically every March of the year. Uh, He came to speak on the subject of Samuel Miller, and this man is currently a pastor of Providence PCA in the great state of North Carolina, and he has his MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and the man I'm speaking with today is Pastor Andy Webb. So Andy, it's great to have you on the program. And I look forward to discussing a little bit about what you talked about at the conference and getting to know maybe through uh, this Internet technology this man who's been long gone now but still speaks in a great way today to us.
1: I'm glad to be able to talk to you about him.
0: Thanks, Andy. Now, uh, Samuel Miller, uh, that may be a, a name that people recognize, but they may not know much about him. So can you tell us a little bit about who Samuel Miller was?
1: Sure. Actually, during the um, the conference, one of the things that I asked uh, the audience was, how many of you are familiar with the, the name Samuel Miller? And first, I, I started out by asking how many people are familiar with Charles Hodge. And, you know, there was a sea of hands. Uh, but then I asked how many of you are familiar with uh, Samuel Miller, and far fewer hands went up. So he isn't uh, as well known uh, as Charles Hodge by any um any stretch of the imagination, and yet, in his day, he was as influential as Charles Hodge, particularly in the first half of the uh, of the 19th century. Miller was um, the second professor at Old Princeton after uh, Archibald Alexander. He was the professor of ecclesiastical history and church government, um, and it was really his own choice. Uh, that uh, was the reason he wasn't uh, the first professor. He had pushed very strongly for uh, Archibald Alexander, uh, who was uh, considered to be a, uh, a stronger, uh, stronger preacher, uh, if not, um, a, uh, a better, I, I suppose, a model of the kind of experimental piety. That they really wanted to push at uh, Old Princeton. So he was the, uh, he's best known as the second professor there, but before then he had had a um, a great uh, career as a churchman. He was uh, the pastor of the, uh, one of the pastors, I should say, of the collegiate Presbyterian churches in New York City, uh, which at the time when he was there was probably one of the most influential churches Mm -hmm. in uh, the entire United States. So a great pastor and a great scholar as well.
0: Now, your your conference paper, and I, and I say that, that's kind of a buzzword for us around the seminary world <laughs> that, you know, when we say conference paper, what does that mean? Well, your lecture, the thing that you spoke on at the conference, what was it specifically about Samuel Miller? What uh, actual attack or angle did you take about him and his life?
1: Well they they wanted me to talk about his pastoral theology. Um, I I chose to um, talk about his biography first off because I th- I think this was a person who needs to be reintroduced so to speak on the uh, American scene. But then to talk uh about his uh his faithfulness uh in what mm-hmm. he was uh doing his um his piety and the ways uh in which learning uh and piety uh, came together in him and and he uh influence so many students uh, in that way there wasn't uh there was nothing cold and doctrinaire about uh, about Miller um, but at the same time he uh was a man who was tremendously learned and emphasized constantly the need of a learned ministry and there was also nothing you know crazy and uh in 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 the modern sense you know goofy in his in his piety he was not uh, uh he was not a man who uh, was all zeal and no knowledge but at the same time there was a there was a burning uh, love of Christ uh, in his breast that uh, nobody who came in contact with him uh, didn't uh, detect so he was mm-hmm. a man who, who brought together uh, faith and piety um, zeal and knowledge um, beautifully and, that, and and that's what I wanted to try to convey to the students and if possible to relate that to GPTS's. um... Um, goals and mission, you know, logic on fire being one of the things that uh, I often see from uh, GPTS, uh, in, in GPTS material. So that was trying, what I was trying to bring together in my speech, or talk, or whatever it was.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, um, uh, the pastoral aspect, certainly here at the seminary, that's one of the, you know, the, the pastoral slash preaching aspect is certainly one of the big emphases and distinctives of the school. Um, What is it about Samuel Miller that got you interested in him in the first place? That's a good question,
1: actually. I first encountered uh, Samuel Miller when I was a seminary student. Uh, I'd never heard of him before going to seminary, and I was um, taking a look at uh, Presbyterianism. I was was taking a a course called Reformed Spirituality at the time, and I, I was Researching the subject of uh, holy days in the church calendar, where where it came in, and uh, I picked up Miller's book on uh, Presbyterianism, and uh, it has a it has an incredibly long title, but it's basically his defense of, of Presbyterian distinctives. Uh, he wrote it at a time when Presbyterianism was under attack, mostly uh, by Anglicans in the United States. Um, and he wrote why he believed uh, in that volume why Presbyterianism was the ancient and apostolic religion. And uh, he was defending old-school Presbyterianism, and particularly their view of, of holy days. And there was just one section on holy days uh, that I was so impressed by. Um, it, 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 it kind of finished all the other arguments for me and, mm. and nailed it. And from that point onwards, I was thinking to myself, I must uh, I must read this, man. The long title that I was avoiding, incidentally, is Presbyterianism, the Truly Primitive and Apostolical Constitution of the Church of Jesus Christ, which is one of those typical
0: mouthfuls. That, you know, well, that sounds time. sounds very much like a Puritan title.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, well, no, the Puritan title would have had three or four more paragraphs.
0: You know, sure, and that was then short by comparison. Yeah, and a few subtitles under the book right. as well. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned old-school Presbyterianism, and, and for the sake of those listening— to this, and I, I certainly know what you mean by that. Um, you obviously know what you mean by that. But there may be a lot of people they think, well, old school. Does that mean there's a new school? What, what are we talking about when we talk about old school Presbyterianism?
1: Well, there, there certainly is an old. Uh, there's an old and new school uh, Presbyterianism. Old school Presbyterianism, uh, and the, the way that uh, that phrase came about was there was a, um, a schism in the Presbyterian uh, Church in the United States in the uh, 19. Oh, sorry, 1800s with uh the, between the old school and the new school men the new school men uh were less confessional uh they were pushing for what uh, finney had called the new measures or revivalism instead of revival we would all want revival but these men had uh had a, had plans for revivalism also you began to see things like arminianism creeping into their um into their belief structure uh, and just generally, there was uh, what we might call today in our sphere a, uh, a loose view of subscription. Uh, really, was what marked the uh, the new school men. Uh, they were far more culturally influenced, whereas the old school men uh, stuck to the old paths. Um, now, that's not to say that they weren't, you know, warm experimental Calvinists. They were. The old school men were were very much uh, uh, in that uh, in that frame. That the, the uh, uh, the frame of the the Log College and the Gilbert uh, and William Tennant, uh... School, and I realize I'm using names that probably are not going to be that familiar with your listeners, but um, these were men who who believed strongly in preaching for revival, preaching for conversion, uh, that our preaching should aim at the head and the heart. But at the same time, they believed uh, in the Calvinistic doctrines taught in the Confessions, and they wanted to hold on to them. Whereas the New School men uh, were more, as I said, more Armenian, more, more culturally uh, influenced and had um, this, this system of revivalism that they were pushing for.
0: And Samuel Miller, he was um, you indicated that he, he um, laid out certain distinctives of Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. What are some of those distinctives? And as you're thinking through that, and, and we're talking back and forth about that, it might even be interesting, for the sake of our modern culture, to so compare some of that over against what we where we find ourselves maybe today.
1: Oh wow. Okay. Well, that is yeah. That's a um, that is a, an interesting uh, topic. In terms of uh, old school Presbyterianism, really the genius of uh, old school Presbyterianism is the idea that everything uh, that we do in our faith and our life and our practice. As, uh, as Presbyterians or as Christians uh, should be based upon the Bible. So if it comes to the worship of the church, uh, then the worship of the church is to come directly out of uh, what the Bible teaches. We're not supposed mm-hmm. to make stuff up, and that is really, that's really the heart of old school uh, Presbyterianism. Uh, it means, for instance, that we stick to, uh, in our worship, what's called um, the regulative principle of worship uh which states that if um, if it's not in the Bible we don't do it if it's not commanded uh in the Bible then uh it shouldn't be part of our uh part of our worship um, so as a result that that differs uh greatly as you you, you probably know from modern presbyterian worship uh, with its P and W and uh, praise and worship and, and stuff like that. Um, modern Presbyterian worship, really the, the worship system, has been influenced heavily by Episcopalianism, which states that uh, you know the church has authority to come up with rites and ceremonies. And also from the modern seeker-sensitive uh, movement, which basically states that if people like it, it should be part of our worship, as long as it's not specifically um uh, you know, uh, how do I put it? Uh, opposed to the, mm. you know, as long as it's not outright idolatry or something like that, then
0: uh, then we should be doing it. And did Samuel Miller lay out in any kind of written form these distinctives, or are these just something that were have been gleaned from his life and his writings and his lectures and preaching?
1: Well, uh, it's hard to say. The um, yeah, it really is uh, laid out in his book on Presbyterianism. I mean, he states specifically what Presbyterians believe and what they don't believe. For instance, um, and you got to understand that the, the, the main body that he was arguing against at that point in time was uh, Anglicanism, um, or Episcopalianism, as, uh, as we would call it in the Episcopalian theories of worship and, uh, and uh, the priesthood. Uh, as opposed to, um, you know, the idea that the officers of the church should be elders and deacons. So he was really arguing against the Anglicans who were attacking Presbyterianism and saying that uh, it it didn't have any right to exist. That they uh, that Presbyterian pastors, for instance, were not. Um, Uh, successors of the apostles, uh, and that, uh, Presbyterianism was an innovation and it should be uh, dispensed with. And he was arguing, no, 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 no. It's Presbyterian that's biblical. Episcopalianism is, uh, is the innovation. It was the thing that came in later on. We're going back to the biblical roots of church government. So in Presbyterianism, that, that book that I was, uh, speaking of, he outlines, uh, what it is that, um, uh, that Presbyterians believe about, uh, about worship about church government, um, and although it's not a systematic theology, it is a wonderful uh, kind of sprint through church history in the Bible
0: and explaining why we believe what we
1: believe. Mm. So
0: I'd recommend and, and, that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to, at the end of this broadcast we'll um, get the title from you so I can post that um, for those who might be interested in mm-hmm. uh, getting that, acquiring that, and looking through it. Now, your conference lecture was directed using the, the life of Samuel Miller and the things and influences that he had were directed at the life specifically of the pastoral ministry or those training to be in the pastoral ministry. Now, how does his life and the things that he wrote do that? I mean, what specific things, and I guess I'm thinking back to the things you said maybe at the conference without redoing the entire lecture, <laughs> Um yeah. Um, but thinking back through some of the things that you said in that lecture, where in this uh, venue, as we're talking, I'm able to interrupt you, as it were, or maybe ask probing questions that were, nobody was able to do that back in March when you were talking that you just talked and everybody listened, hopefully. And um, But here we can, I can maybe interact a little bit more with some, some of the things that you said, specifically related to the, to the goal of using Samuel Miller as a springboard or a model or an example in the pastoral/slash preaching office.
1: Well, um, first off, his published works are, are, are still of immense value. Um, some of it's a little archaic. For instance, one of his um, his works that was written specifically for students for pastoral um, uh, students who were going into pastoral ministry was written on clerical habits or clerical manners, uh, and it was basically uh, a book designed to tell. Ministers, how they should be uh, deporting themselves, if I can use that archaic term, in the world, how they should be living in the world, um, and it's not—it's it, it, valuable these days, if only because it's a question I don't think we think about: um, what kind of what kind of life should a minister live? Uh, what kind of seriousness should he conduct himself with? Uh, what kind of things should he speak about? Shouldn't he speak about how should uh, how should he be perceived by the world? And it wasn't a way, you know, he. Um, I, I need to emphasize this. Uh, Miller was not, by any uh, stretch of the imagination, saying that we should pretend or put on airs. Far from it. He was saying that uh, somebody who loves the Bible, somebody who's, um, whose whose uh, blood is bibbling to use Spurgeon's phrase, this is the way that he'll look in front of the uh, the world. Um, and and so that was that's one of his his valuable books. He talks about. Um, Is still, you know, ways of uh, communicating the gospel to others in your everyday conversation, things like that. So his letters on clerical manners, uh, and there's there's just some good uh, uh, some good advice. He says uh, he talks about um, theological students being overly addicted to tobacco. Uh, He says they're the worst for (laughs) that, and he says you know it's never impressive to uh, to be completely inundated with the smell of uh, smoke or uh... to be surrounded by a pool of tobacco spittle uh... when you're you know attempting to press for the uh, claims of jesus christ things like that but um... so clerical manners his uh... his doctrinal works on presbyterianism the one that i just uh, mentioned for instance his work on the ruling elder i would recommend that anybody who wants to be a teaching elder uh... in a church uh... in a presbyterian church needs to read his his book on the ruling elder it mm-hmm. really will will open up to them uh, how these men, who they're going to be laboring alongside, uh, should be uh, working alongside them within the church, supporting them, and so on. It's a wonderful reference to give to your ruling elders to read. Uh, so that's uh, that's a that's a godsend. Also, um, his sermons and his essays are models uh, to modern pastors on how to use church history in supporting your works. You know, you know the um, or supporting your, your teaching. Uh, there's a tendency in Episcopalianism, I find, um, or you know, Roman Catholicism, to just draw from church history. But Miller does a wonderful thing. He starts with the Bible, and then he backs it up and says, and this is how it was worked out in the history of the church, either for good or for bad. Um, and it's that historical uh, mode of thinking that he's got that I don't think we have today. And the great value of that is uh, it, it shows us where there were successes in the church and where we can expect there to be successes today and where there were errors in the church and we should expect the same errors to come up if we do the same thing so that would be um... Uh, ways in which i think uh, is particularly valuable for students today
0: When you talk about the things that he mentioned, and I'm kind of zeroing in on a couple of these categories that you mentioned, in in one in particular, because I think it has practical relevance, not just for necessarily for ministers, but certainly for them, but this whole idea of the minister's life, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think there's a tendency to, uh, I don't even know what the word is, there's a tendency to place the pastors in such a position that it's almost Papist in a way, um, mm-hmm. they're elevated in such a degree that that they're not allowed to have a life. They're not a. Have... I don't think that's what he's referring to. He's he's talking about. Uh, is he talking about the more practical elements of conducting oneself, even as a Christian? Mm-hmm. In other words, you're a Christian first, who happens to be a minister of the gospel, mm-hmm. and that means that your Christianity needs to measure up to that calling that you have as a minister. And in what ways? Does he talk about that? I mean, what specific things does he suggest or, or even state directly as it pertains to that category?
1: Well, one of the things that um, he. he- mentioned, and yeah, I, I, first let me back up and say, no, he's not drawing this this absolute sacred, secular distinction that you uh, mm-hmm. you see in the Roman Catholic Church at all. He felt that every minister should be uh, first and foremost, uh, obviously, a man who's, whose life was given over to God um, in uh, each and every part of, its, uh, uh, of the way that he lived his life. Um, but also, he felt that every minister should be a Christian gentleman that his manners uh, should be good, that his habits should be good, um, that he uh, should be somebody who um, added to the luster of the gospel rather than detracted from it um, and added to its uh, offense. It shouldn't be harder to believe the gospel because of the way that the minister was living. Um, and one of the things that I, I got to tell you, William, uh, uh, I'm sorry I did it, didn't I? Uh, I've got to tell you, Bill, uh, <laughs> that and, that I really appreciated was this: we are living in an era of almost enforced informality. Everything has to be informal. You see these pastors who who they must have spent hours in order to look grungy. I mean, literally. You know, they've got the, the gel in their hair, making it spiked all up. You know, they're um, uh, their their shirt is uh, immaculately ruffled and pulled out of their their shorts, and they're wearing you know uh, Birkenstocks that I couldn't even afford, and things like that. And it's all this this hey I'm I'm hip I'm cool I'm casual. Um, there's nothing there's no air of formality about me, and this is supposed to make them approachable and relevant and so on. Um, but it I, to my mind it destroys. All of the distinction between the world and the church—it uh, de- it destroys um, the 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 right um, what's the word I'm looking for the right uh, formalism that should attend the preaching of the gospel. I mean, sometimes I, forget, I think we forget that what we're doing when we are preaching the gospel is delivering the words of a king, and not just an earthly potentate, but the ruler of the entire universe. Uh, and we're acting as his ambassadors, all right. And uh, you don't see ambassadors going, you know, to heads of state dressed in sloppily mm. in jeans and uh-huh. and t-shirts and, uh, dude, uh, I come bearing word from uh, Barack, your bud, and you know, um, and there there should be this this sense because I mean, what the king is proposing is a peace treaty uh, via the, the the completed work of his son. To people who, outside of, of that uh, that peace that he alone can give them, are rebels and enemies. We're uh. we're talking about matters of life and death, and there should be uh, a, a reverence, um, an awe, a fear that's involved in it. That's very difficult when you're. I mean, how many how many fearful messages can a guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt
0: really deliver? Um, so. Why do you think, not to interrupt you, but yeah. why do you think, because I mean, you're right, and I agree with you, I think there is sort of this um, informalism, if that's even a word, there's um, this, 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 it, it's almost very laid back, casualistic, uh, again, I probably just made up another word, um, <laughs> mentality, uh, even within the the ranks of the ministerial office, why do you think that is, though? Why why is that a pervasive element in our I guess, Western culture. I've never been to Europe, so I can't speak to that, but I have been in enough churches in the United States to know that in a, in a lot of ways, that's what we're getting. Mm-hmm. Why is that, uh, in your opinion, of course? In the churches, uh,
1: yes. I think there's a lot of reasons that have come together. One, it's that the uh, pop culture is leading the church rather than the church uh, supposedly being a model uh, for the culture. We've lost our willingness to be countercultural. Uh, to be weird, to be peculiar, we just want to fit in with everybody. And so, as society is becoming more, um, more and more informal, but I, I think there's really a theological shift uh, that's going on um, in in two particular areas. First, the sovereignty of God is is just gone. So the idea that uh, that we should be in awe, um, that we should be uh, that He is our Father, and that we should treat Him with respect, uh, is um, is, is just not there any longer there's the sense that God is our is our best bud he's gone from I've heard a lot of English preachers uh, use this phrase he's gone from being the almighty to the old matey um, mm-hmm. and uh, he's you know he's the guy you hang out with now in in mom's basement and, and play Xbox and eat cheetos with it's not but that's not God that's not the God of the Bible that's not the uh, that's not the rule of the universe so I think the the sovereignty of God and the idea that he is the grand potentate of the universe has uh, has begun to disappear from our um, uh, from our preaching also the um, not just the sovereignty but uh, the, the long-term influence of Arminianism and open theism even if it's not called that um, have made it you know, well, you know, I I can call upon God to help me, but He's not the ruler of my life. This um, carnal Christianity is is almost uh, the norm these days. That's why you got, uh, and that of course was related once again to His, his sovereignty. but this um, this idea that uh, God is not somebody who we're supposed to be in fear of, the preaching of the law is something that you just don't you don't see because in order for there to be a law, there's got to be a a king who's making the laws, and you know, so it's. Um, Uh, all of the judicial aspects, all of the ruling aspects, I think, have gone out, and we've got kind of the the fuzzy, warm um, grandfather God, uh, or unfortunately grandmother God in some cases, Mm. um, who we should feel just, you know, completely at ease with. Um, And so it's a caricature, it's an idol. Uh, God has become, um, you know, a deity of our own making, uh, who is more like... um, you know, the, the senile beneficent uh, grandmother than the, um, uh, the awesome ruler that you see in the Psalms, uh, or, uh, you know, in, in our view of Jesus. Uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, uh, I think the smiling uh, hippie has, has really superseded um, the, the actual Jesus of the Bible, certainly the Jesus of Revelation 19, the warrior uh, King who's returning uh, to fight the final battle. This, you know, you just—he you know, doesn't work in the modern construct that the church has made.
0: How would you respond? And I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna take the other side of the table for a second, just to, mm-hmm. because I'm sure there's somebody out there who listens to this program and is thinking, yeah, okay, fine. You know, you're getting all hung up on the way we dress, <laughs> which I don't think that's the issue. No. And no. I think you just well uh, very clearly said that's not the issue. But let me pose this question because I can already hear pe- people thinking this in their mind. Well, Paul said we should be all things to all people. And that's all I'm doing because I know that if I wear, you know, if I dress in a certain way in a certain circumstance, that's not going to attract anybody. Mm hmm.
1: How would you respond to that? Well, I think we've, we've misunderstood Paul to a certain
0: extent. Um, if, for
1: instance, Paul in saying I need to be all things to all people doesn't mean that, okay, I'm dealing with a, a drunkard, so I've got to become a drunkard in order to, uh, to speak to him. I don't have to adopt, first off, anything that's sinful in order to, uh, to speak to somebody, neither do I have to um, uh, adopt uh, a cultural paradigm that runs directly against uh, what Christianity is all about. For instance, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with the, the whole issue of, uh, um, of homosexuality. And mm-hmm. there's this pervasive idea that, um, uh, you can be a Christian, you can be a homosexual as well, or you've got to, you know, stop talking about sexual sins or any sort of hom- sins in order to reach people. Um, but Paul came into the Greek um, into the Greek world, and he spoke things diametrically opposed to their their belief structure. And he talked about, for instance, the resurrection of the body, which was something that had deeply offended them. Hmm. He didn't become a believer in uh, in, in uh, that the that the flesh was bad in order to reach the Greeks. Sometimes he went right against their cultural model, and uh, also he never detracted from the reverence of God. In um, I, I mean, he, some of the most exalted. Uh, words in the entire Bible about the the person of the Messiah Jesus Christ you will find in the epistles of Paul. I mean, he just he goes into these reverential uh, diatribes and he speaks in a way uh, where he humbles himself and he he raises up Christ. So. Um, yes, culturally, we need to be willing, if I go to Mongolia, I need to be willing to live in a yurt, to dress like a Mongolian, to eat what they eat, uh, to speak the way they speak, and so on. Um, and I do believe that there's something that we can learn from that, in that um, we don't have to make people, for instance, Americans, in order to uh, to teach them the gospel. And that really was kind of an idea that was pervasive and uh, up until... Uh, the late 1950s that you went into another culture, you Americanized them, or if you're a British minister, you, uh, you Anglicized them, and then you, uh, then you could teach them the gospel. But um, we can you know, teach Mongolians to be Christians in a Mongolian cultural complex, but at the same time, we don't grab their, their beliefs that they had before they were Christians and kind of put a thin Christian veneer over them and say that's okay. So I don't take the pop culture, Christianize it, and then say that's Christianity. Okay, Lady Gaga is fundamentally opposed in her belief system in the way that she conducts herself to the Christian faith. And so mm. we don't want to create Lady Gaga Christians. Um, there was a kind of a, a roughness, a rudeness to American society in Samuel Miller's day. And Samuel Miller was saying that uh, pastors shouldn't be uh, rough, rude, uh, idiosyncratic people who would offend the sensibilities of a cultured person um, in order to uh, to bring the gospel to them? Okay, so he was somebody who believed that um, that we, as I said before, should be uh, striving to be Christian gentlemen, and that was that was mainly what he was hitting on. I think he was right.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you, and 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 I'm I think you said that very well, especially given the context of even going into foreign fields missions um you know we're not saying uh, you know in america uh, pr- business professionals for lack of a better category or title uh they wear shirt tie um I, you know frankly if i went to my doctor's office and the guy was just like a bum i would be a little afraid for him to <laughs> right. you know touch me thank you um and if i went to a lawyer who uh, looked like he just rolled out of the you know rolled out of a bar I'd be a little concerned with him hang, handling any of my legal issues. It's a perception. Um, and,
1: and Miller actually made that point in his clerical manners. He said, you know, you wouldn't go, he, he put it quite, uh, using the same example you did, you wouldn't go to a doctor or a lawyer who appeared to be an idiot. So you don't, <laughs> you don't come across uh, that way either.
0: Absolutely. But but at the same time, um, you know, we don't go into a foreign country and, and, and say, look, in order to be a good Christian, you have to wear a shirt and tie. That's not the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, But I I think the issue is, as you stated it, that we don't adopt the culture and sort of merge it into a Christian, or Christianize it, or merge it into the Christian idea, and then call it Christianity. Um, There's a distinct difference between that, and I think that's really what Paul was getting at, as you've already indicated. Uh, We're running a little short on time, and I know we kind of ran a little off uh, off, a field there for a second, but let me ask this question. This is maybe more thought-provoking, or might generate some thinking from other people, but if Samuel Miller were alive today Mm -hmm. and, and based on your study and reading of him and, and, and the work that you did, uh, especially to present this material at the conference, um, how might he react to what he sees going on in the church in, in general, but specifically in Presbyterianism as a whole? Oh my, that's,
1: that's such a wide-ranging question.
0: It, it is. So right, pick, do, do I get pick, in trouble if I say I think he'd be appalled? Um, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, if you didn't say that, I might be a little. Dis- I would probably be somewhat disappointed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm glad that he'd be appalled. No, he. Um, yeah, we've gotten away from uh, so much of what I think he and Hodge would have regarded to be the, the, the genius of Presbyterianism. Um, we are way too influenced by the culture. We want to be loved by um, uh, by everyone. He uh, he was by no means a um, a political man by nature. He had a very ironic character, um, mm. but at the same time he fought for uh, Presbyterianism whenever it was under attack, and he was a great defender. I mean, he thought it was the, the teaching of the Bible. There's no reason you shouldn't stand for the distinctives. Uh, and he was also very, very zealous um, for Presbyterian worship. Um, he uh, obviously came from the, uh, the era of, uh, of exclusive psalmody, um, did not believe in instruments and worship and things like that. Now we might uh, argue with him over um, whether or not I, I happen to believe that the singing of, um, of hymns and spiritual songs is commanded in Scripture so that it's part of the regular principle. And I do believe that music, um, if it's not overpowering, obviously, and not solos, not special music, and so on, but um, the playing of the piano, a guitar, a flute to accompany the, uh, the singing of the congregation, especially in our non-musical age, uh, that this is a circumstance that uh, aids in, the, um, uh, in congregational singing, which is the element of worship. Um, but just generally, all of the the introduction of all these uh, these elements that aren't part of the worship, um, things like uh, skits, uh, liturgical dance, um, and and just generally uh, the the lack of the lack of reverence um, within our uh, within our worship would have uh, appalled them. Also, one of the things that you you see in in his um, in his sermons, he presses always, you know, the urgency of uh, of the gospel and our need to close with Christ. But it's always law and gospel, and uh, mm-hmm. very much a um, he had he had a Christian worldview. He did not have a Christianized worldview. He believed that, uh, for instance, um, America should be uh, a nation that was. Um, uh, he believed that the goodness of America, for instance, came from the fact that it was a nation founded upon a Christian worldview. It's one of the reasons why, uh, and it's it's very interesting. I know I'm getting further afield here. He um uh, okay. Uh, he started off as a as a supporter of Thomas Jefferson uh, because he was very much a believer in uh, in Jefferson's limited government and republicanism and so on. But uh, when he realized that Jefferson was a deist, or you know to to uh, his um, thinking, an infidel, especially when uh, Jefferson refused to approve a day of prayer, uh, his thinking about Jefferson changed dramatically. Uh, mm. So he was a man who who believed very much uh, that a Christian worldview um, should be driving uh, our lives, our congregations, our nation. And I think if we've lost anything in Christianity, it is that Christian worldview. We've simply adopted the pop you know the pop culture's worldview, baptized it. And, and we call it Christian, and I think he would be appalled at that. I think also he would be appalled at the lack of an... if there's one huge difference between Miller and his time and ours today, it's the lack of an educated ministry. Uh, mm. They... Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just the his trials... Uh, I, I don't think most of our professors could have passed his ordination trials, the things that he was required uh, to do.
0: We have... what well, we have... Uh, uh, You know, we have fifty times more seminaries today than he had in his day, Uh Uh, but we have less educated ministers.
1: Yes, Um, and you you see that in um, in just a lack of uh, of Bible training. But um, Mm. if I can give you um, an example of what he had to um, go through. Uh, in order to become a, uh, a licensiate, and we're not talking about ordination. This is just his licensure trials. They took three separate presbytery meetings. They included an oral examination in Latin and Greek, experimental religion, general college studies, and theology. He also had to deliver two sermons, an exegetical paper on Luke, an exegetical paper delivered in Latin on the question of whether uh, Christ descended into hell as well. And so, I mean, this is just for licensure. The expectation was that a man coming into the ministry at that age would have been an expert in the Bible and in the related theological uh, doctrines around it, and also would have had a competent knowledge of what they would have called secular learning, that this man would really have been um, very, very bright, and he, um, the way Miller... Put it was in his inaugural. He he delivered the inaugural address at Old Princeton when uh, Archibald Alexander was being installed as the first professor, and he said that uh, a student for the ministry should have four qualities. First was piety, without which you you can't have a a student uh, for the ministry. It doesn't matter how smart he is if he doesn't love the Lord and if he's not concerned to glorify him in his own life then he's no student for ministry. Secondly, that he would have talents. Mm. Thirdly, that he would have competent knowledge and fourthly, diligent, uh, diligence. And I think that our ministerial candidates, generally speaking, and I, I say this with no great, you know, no triumphalism at all. It's, it saddens me that our ministerial candidates as a general rule are lacking in all four of those. Um, we're, not, we're not diligent. I mean, how many, how many times do we hear of men who, who download their sermons from the Internet? I sometimes wonder, you know, what is a church paying a man for if he's downloading a sermon, you know? Why not employ an actor? He would do a better go- job of delivering it. That's you know? right, that's right. Uh, he, could, he could do Rick Warren impersonations for you. But um, So I think that would have been the thing that probably would have appalled him the most, that the, that the ministry had su- has sunk so low, uh, not only in, in, um, in practice, but in our estimation. You know, it's just not, uh, what it used to be. And that's probably one of the reasons why the, the doctrinal knowledge within the pews is, uh, is so much lower as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that stands to reason if your ministers are not education, not equipped from the educational perspective at the very least, um, there's no possible way for them to communicate that which, what they don't own.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, how would you, if, you had the ability um, in and of yourself um, to rec- rectify some of these problems that uh, that certainly are there. I, I've been in presbytery meetings and I have seen examinations on the floor that, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the word is. They're, they're, they just seem so surface. Yeah. It, that's, that, that's a great word. They're disappointing. I, I think, wow. Um, I could have answered those questions, and I didn't even go to seminary. Yeah. Um, you know, um, how would how do we fix it in in our culture that seems in very much in a hurry to get stuff done, and because of that, it seems things get short-circuited or corners get cut. How, how do we fix that today?
1: Well, um, one thing that we have to do is uh, we have to abandon the pragmatic now. One of the things that I want to emphasize is this was a problem in Miller's Day, and he was arguing strongly against it, and the Princeton faculty um, were very much with him. But one of the new school um, emphases was that they they did um, believe that there was too much emphasis on knowledge and learning and doctrine and so on. Uh, And in that, they were heavily influenced by the Methodists and the Baptists. Methodist churches were spreading like wildfire. I mean, all you really needed to be a Methodist uh, circuit-writing minister was a, um, a fairly, uh, you know, um, fairly good knowledge of the Bible, uh, a Bible and a horse, and you could uh. be a Methodist minister. And that's one of the reasons why it was much, much easier to set up a Methodist church than it was a Presbyterian one. Also, the Methodists didn't need a Presbyterian so on. So pr- from a pragmatic standpoint, the Methodist way of uh, training ministers and establishing churches was better. But the long-term results of it were... I mean, uh, dramatically worse. Uh, And any time that you had that that lack of doctrinal knowledge, inevitably heresy filled the vacuum. That's what happened on the frontiers, Um, uh, even within Presbyterian um, uh, circles, where you had uh, less doctrine, less oversight, less accountability. Uh, You began to get heresies cropping up. Uh, And the same thing happens uh, today with, um, uh, you know, bad theology will inevitably fill the vacuum if there's no uh, good theology being taught. What we have to do uh, is to look in church history and we need to say that the pragmatic approach to things, uh, what's easiest, never produces uh, good fruit over the long run, and that it's actually the hard road. The taking up our cross and following after Christ and walking the hard road, the you know the road of sorrows, the Via Dolorosa, sometimes, is um, uh, is going to be the better way of uh, of training. So rather than trying to cut corners, and I've been a GA when they've been coming up with all these plans to make you know ministerial education even easier, rather than cutting corners, we should be asking, you know, why. Uh, why aren't our students? Um, I heard Brian Chappell, for instance, the head of, or until recently, the president of CTS, saying that it used to be that uh, two-thirds of our our students passed the English Bible exam coming in. Now two-thirds failed the English Bible exam coming in. I read
0: that report.
1: So it's, um, you know, we should be asking ourselves, why does this happen? How do we stop it? Rather than, how do we make it even easier to become um, a minister? when we know that the results of that uh, approach are not good, historically and uh, and in fact. So um, I, I think we need to abandon that ungodly pragmatism that says, you know, let's just take the, the easy road whenever we can.
0: Yeah, and, and just for the record, since this is a podcast of Greenville Seminary, um, I, I just received an email today from one of our professors, actually, reminding the student body that in order to graduate from this seminary, you have to pass a rather extensive Bible knowledge exam. You can't Mm -hmm. just walk out of here with a diploma because you fulfilled, you know Greek and Hebrew, okay, so you're equipped. No, that's important, don't get me wrong, but we have a, here at this seminary, you have to pass an extensive written Bible exam. And I, Uh, I, if I can just um, sure,
1: say sure. Uh, you know not specifically to Puff GPTS, but I, I, I like their approach. I really do. I think that their their emphasis on um, uh, that their emphasis is, is the old Princeton emphasis that it does keep those four uh, critical attributes in in, uh, in mind, um, and that what we need are more institutions that meld that um, that desire uh, that GPTS had that old Princeton had uh, their values their goals with professors like Samuel Miller, but the problem is there's so few of those those men around, um, unfortunately.
0: Well, and as some may know, and most probably don't, um, that is actually the model that this seminary was founded on, Mm -hmm. the old Princeton um, uh, approach to doing things, and um, uh, by the Lord's goodness, and and he has enabled the board here to maintain that. uh, with strong leadership and, and sound educational instruction in the classroom. But it's it goes way beyond that. and um, So it's an important distinctive, and I think it's a necessary one. And as you indicated, in our culture today, uh, we don't need less educated men standing in the pulpit. Yeah. They didn't need less educated men standing in the pulpit in Miller's day. We definitely don't need it in, in, in today's world, um, especially with the internet and, and all the social networking capabilities and options out there. Um, we need men who are able to deal with these things in a 21st century context with intent, but, but be academically equipped to do that. Um, as well as of course, having the moral fiber Mm -hmm. that is often ignored. Um, he he has the degree, so he must be a minister kind (laughs) of mentality. And well, be that as it may, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, but, um, I've always tended to have a higher regard. I think someone once said that if you love your people and, and you, you you model Christ to your people, they'll forgive bad preaching. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do those things, they won't forgive you your bad preaching at all. So um, it, it's a both-and proposition, certainly. Uh, Andy, just real quick before we close, what resources might you offer someone who's listening to this and thinks, you know, I'd like to read some more of this old school Presbyterian guy, Samuel Miller, and things that he said, because that's interesting to me, and I'd like to know more about that.
1: All right, um, in terms of uh, just getting an introduction to um, who was this this guy, uh, Samuel Miller, um, I think it's uh, David Calhoun's uh, works on Princeton. Uh, he gives a wonderful retrospect of, of his life and his work and his piety, uh, especially his, his labors at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I believe, the first biography I ever read of, uh, of Samuel Miller. Also, uh, they, they were reprinted by um, Solid Ground a while back. Uh, the Annals of the American Presbyterian Pulpit, Volume 1 by William Sprague has um, uh, a, a wonderful little biography of Samuel Miller as well as another, uh, a bunch of the other eminent churchmen of the 19th century, which should give you uh, a toehold. In terms of reading um, other biographical works, there, uh, it, one of his descendants, also named Samuel Miller, wrote a, um, uh, a two-volume uh, biography of Samuel Miller. I would not recommend necessarily Reading that particular book um, simply because it's um, uh, not exactly, it, it, it would have. It could have been edited down to one volume, let's put it that uh-huh, way. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just got too many quotations. I mean, it's a wonderful historical resource, but it makes for very, very heavy, uh, heavy reading. In terms of stuff he wrote himself, I've already uh, talked up uh, his book on Presbyterianism. Um, the ruling elder is something that absolutely uh, every uh, teaching elder, and certainly every ruling elder as well, um, should uh, have read. Those were the ones that I would uh, definitely start on. His um, Also, his clerical manners, still, like I said, very uh, good um, for people who are going or planning on studying uh, the ministry. There's some stuff that will make you smile. Uh, I love his, his comment, for instance. I'm sorry to make this, this uh, comment. Uh, he believed that you shouldn't, uh, that um, Presbyterian ministers shouldn't have a drinking problem, and he included water in that. He believed that we drink far too much water and that we should be carrying it uh, into the pulpit. So, uh, you know, he said he was disgusted by, you know, ministers who couldn't finish the sermon without taking several sips of water every few months.
0: Well, even we can agree with even some of the giants of the faith on something. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I would be condemned by that uh, as well. I apparently have a water drinking problem. Anyway, um, uh, infant baptism, scriptural and reasonable, and baptism by sprinkling or effusion, the most suitable and edifying mode, it sounds like a, uh, a mouthful. It's actually based on two, two sermons, but believe it or not, this is the best comprehensive explanation of uh, the Presbyterian uh, views of infant baptism that I've ever read um especially the the appendices uh to it are also really really valuable in explaining why we uh we do things and we don't do things what we think that the, the uh the sacrament of baptism does and doesn't do who it should be administered to who it shouldn't be it's a wonderful uh old school uh, kind of synopsis of um of our view of uh, infant baptism and i always recommend it to people who are struggling with different views of uh, infant baptism, I think it would be wonderful. Also, if uh, and I hate to get polemical, it's a wonderful corrective to the views of the federal vision regarding baptism, showing that Presbyterians did not believe what the federal vision guys uh, are saying that they believed about um, uh, about baptism. Um, he also, this is this is interesting. If you're ever dealing with the issue of slavery, he wrote a. a a sermon that was delivered in 1797 a discourse delivered before the New York city for the manumission of slaves you can still get the um, uh the uh, the bound photocopy of it and it is uh, it's fascinating it real and he he really did see um, the civil war coming over this issue uh so it's it's well worth reading um, especially you know because we have to deal with uh, attacks on the bible on that particular issue and be able to uh-huh. answer Being able to produce a churchman who who wrote a great, uh, you know, reasoned defense on why slavery was not something that Christians should be engaged in, at least not the way it was practiced in the Old South, is um, is very helpful. So um, that would be one of the things I would recommend. There's a lot of different uh, stuff he uh, he wrote. Oh, um, if you're ever looking for a wonderful synopsis of uh... the the origins of american presbyterianism in its in its formative years in the late eighteenth century around the revolutionary war as well his um, biography of his good friend uh... the, the reverend um, uh... john rogers is just tremendous it it really is uh... uh... worth reading it it's it's a shame he wrote a better biography of of his um... his fellow worker john rogers than uh... Than, um... The later Samuel Miller wrote
0: of him. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, those are some great resources, and I will try to make those all available on the um, GPTS website where we house all of these podcasts. I am currently working, in fact, on a different site to try to streamline some of the media um, outreaches that we have here and sort of put them all together instead of having them segregated as we've currently got them over different um, platforms but we're trying to move them all into one area where it makes it just simple for everybody to just go to one place get what they want and not have to hunt all over the place to find it so we're working on that it's still a little ways away from coming I'm also working on the possibility it's a possibility of Uh, having uh, a mobile app for the seminary that will allow this podcast to be placed there. So resources and that kind of thing could be simply clicked on, but your smartphone, Hey, look, we live in the 21st century and might as well use this technology as long as we can do it at a reasonable cost. So these are things we're working on and I will try to get these resources up on the website for those who listen Uh, to uh, use, uh, I try to include links to the resources so that you can go right to them, and if I happen to find free copies of that kind of thing in PDF format or whatever, and they are out there um, if you look for them, um, I will try to include those as well. Andy, it's been great. We've had, I I know know we've talked kind of around some subjects, and um, you've introduced a few subjects we could probably do a whole hour on in and of itself. Um, but I think it would be uh, good for people to uh, plunge back into some of these men of old, as it were, and 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 reflect. Uh, here's where we are, and here's what they were talking about even back then, and you know, here's where we are now as a church. And had we had we um, had we done more to listen to those men back then, it would have been much better for us now. So, um, but I do appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and with this uh, podcast here at Greenville Seminary and appreciate your labors and your work and of course your conference lecture. Is that going to be included in the written format? Uh, Do you
1: know? If I ever put together the footnotes and get it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the idea.
0: Because I, I, as I understand things, that is going to be released in a written Yeah, Yeah, in format. the confessional
1: Presbyterian. Is, uh, yes. is where it's supposed to be coming out. And I'm a little little behind on getting that in, so thank you for pricking my conscience on <laughs> Well, yeah,
0: and, and I think the seminary actually is going to release a series of those as well in a booklet, book format. I may be wrong on that, don't quote me on it, but I think that's the plan anyway, last I had heard. And, of course, I will announce that information uh, to everybody when it does happen, and people would want to get their hands on some of those um, lectures as well and be able to do it in a written format so you can sit and ponder over it and read through it um, and uh, digest it there. So anyway, Andy, it's been great. I appreciate your time and uh, trust the Lord will bless your work and ministry there in Fayetteville and that you'll see fruit from it. And uh, stay the course, of course. <laughs> stay the course, of course. <laughs> it's a good thing my rhetoric professor doesn't listen to these. He would uh, <laughs> crucify me for my... Terrible grammar I tend to have sometimes, yeah, but uh, right. anyway,
1: appreciate right. your time. No, no, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Bill. Good talking
0: Great, to you. Thank you. you. Okay. You've been, yep. You've been listening to a discussion with Andy Webb. He's a pastor uh, PCA Church out in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and he's been talking with me about his conference lecture he did a few months back um, on Samuel Miller, and we we talked a little bit about some around some of the issues, but we also talked about the particulars of his lecture as well. And I would strongly encourage people to think about and, and look back on and read some of these older men in our church history. Uh, there's a lot to glean and a lot to benefit from. And I think if we just take the time to do these things, um, t- take a Lord's Day afternoon and start working through some of these some of these pieces of material, um, I think it would benefit you as a Christian in your walk with Christ. And, and certainly, that's what we're trying to convey. Ultimately, uh, that's what we're hoping people do, that they're edified in their faith and, and their walk with the Lord, um, not just to fill their minds with more information about church history, but to use it you know, as a means to, to, to grow and be strengthened in this most precious doctrine that we have, that is the Reformed faith. And so I would encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities and those resources that have been presented. Think through them. Uh, I am not really sure what my schedule is for the next couple of weeks as far as uh, who's coming on and when. I, I have an idea, but I don't want to tip my hand too soon. I will be away next week, so there will not be a podcast next week. I will be at the Banner of Truth conference, so a little plug for them that's happening up in Pennsylvania. It's a yearly conference. It's fantastic from what I hear. I've never been. I'm looking forward to it, though, this time, and so I will be away. Uh, the following week, I think I know who's coming on, but I don't want to necessarily say yet, but I will... Post that information on Twitter, Facebook, or wherever. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow Greenville Seminary at GPT Seminary. That's our Twitter name, just basically who we are, GPT Seminary. So you can follow us there. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, Look me up. I'm widely, I'm easy to find. So look me up. I'm there somewhere. Um, Also, we're on Facebook, so you can find the seminary on Facebook as well. So until, I'm not really sure. I think it's two weeks and with who I'm not telling we do hope you've enjoyed this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and God bless